You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Well, as if you've been following us at all over the past couple months, you'll know that our sermons have been following the stories from Genesis, the stories of the matriarchs and patriarchs of Israel, which means I don't have an opportunity tonight to say really much about that parable, which is not an easy parable. You can wait three years till the next time it shows up in the lectionary. I would just point out, though, that uh, I, I listened to a very fine sermon on that parable this morning in which the preacher reminded us that uh, the great Western Christian theologian, St. Augustine, firmly believed that it was possible that weeds could become wheat. In other words, the parable ultimately has hope built into it. It isn't all about judgment and harshness. Weeds could indeed become wheat. I'll leave it at that. Three years, it'll come up back up again. Tonight in Genesis, we, we come to one of the better known images in the whole set of stories, that of Jacob's ladder. Between last Sunday's reading and this one tonight, though, There has been a very significant incident that the lectionary skipped past. It's the incident which explains why it is that Jacob has left Beersheba and is now headed toward Haran. Short version, he's fleeing for his life. Last Sunday's reading told the story of how Jacob had conned his brother Esau out of his birthright his status as the firstborn of the twin brothers. Well, that story is then followed by a series of incidents in the life of their father Isaac, and then the story that occasions Jacob's flight from home. That one, Isaac is described as being old, his eyes dim so that he could not see. Isaac is becoming aware of his own mortality. Assured that he has little time to live, he prepares to offer his blessing to his firstborn, Esau. He calls Esau and tells him to go and hunt game, to cook it for his father. Prepare for me savory food such as I like, so that I may bless you before I die, is what the text says. You might recall from last week's story that, quote, Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. How I'd suggested that that was some serious foreshadowing? Well, here we go. Rebekah does not want Esau to receive that blessing. For she loves, she favors Jacob. She sets a bit of subterfuge into motion. While Esau is out hunting for game to prepare for his father, Isaac, Rebekah prepares a goat stew. 
She disguises Jacob as Esau. Isaac is blind, remember. And she sends him in with the stew to get the treasured father's blessing. When Esau finally returns with the game and prepares it for his father, takes it in while the jig is up. He's been cheated. And, quote, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. Seething with anger, he, he begins to plot to kill his brother. Their mother, Rebekah, catches word of this and tells Jacob to flee. But to go under the pretense of heading back to her brother Laban's home in Haran to seek there a wife. That's the version that they give to poor old Isaac, who actually blesses Jacob in his search for a non-Canaanite wife. So off Jacob goes, traveling alone, probably feeling that he's lost pretty much everything in the bargain. Sure, he has that stolen blessing that had been intended for Esau, but what use was that to him when he lost the familiarity of home, the close proximity to his mother, the respect of his father, and the trust of his brother gone? Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. A stone for a pillow, is it? Doesn't sound particularly comfortable to me, though there is some evidence that this was a practice not unknown in the ancient Near East. There's also a traditional rabbinical interpretation that suggests the stone might have been placed alongside of the head to serve as something of a protective barrier while one slept. Doesn't really matter, of course, as the stone's real significance will come after Jacob has had his dream. Let me read it to you again. Jacob dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob, you've not lost everything after all. Even as you travel far from home, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. This is not the end, Jacob. This is a new beginning. As surely as I was faithful to your grandfather Abraham, I am faithful to you and to your heirs. And then he wakes from his sleep, stunned by what he's just dreamt, 
Filled with wonder and with fear, Jacob declares, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. In her treatment of this episode, Madeleine L'Engel suggests that it is wonder and awe that Jacob most needs at this juncture in his life. He needs to have his head lifted and his eyes raised to something much bigger than himself so that he can begin to know that he can't control everything. He can't engineer every detail of his own life. He can't con his way through it all. Fleeing, alone, far from home, what Jacob most needs is this gift and promise. The gift of glimpsing the transcendent holiness and otherness of God and the promise that in this God he does have a future. His story is embedded in a much bigger story and Jacob needs to let his jaw drop in wonder at it all. Then in the morning, when Jacob rose, he took that stone and he set it in place as a pillar, as a marker, poured oil over top of it and gave to the place a new name, Bethel, or literally, House of God. He marks his experience, his wonder and his awe, ritually and symbolically. I think that's really significant and something we do well to attend to in our own lives. I mean, we do mark things ritually, of course. Whenever we have a marker placed on a grave in a cemetery, that's what we're doing. In our own St. Ben's context, we mark ritually things like the blessing of a home. And we do that often when we're not in the pandemic time. <laughs> On my bookshelves at home, I have an icon of Jesus, I have a pottery cross, and a communion cup. And by my front door, I have a clay plaque that reads, Bidden or not bidden, God is present. A quote from Erasmus. Those simple markers are meant to remind me of God's presence in my home day by day by day. Not that God is absent in other places in my life, by no means. As Robert Capon once said to me, quote, we, we tend to ask the wrong question. We ask, where is God? The right question is, where is the world? The world is in God. Couldn't be anywhere else. It's being held together by God. It's the only thing that gives it its existence. Where can I flee from your presence, O Lord, as the psalmist puts it? Well, you can't. You're always in God's presence. But setting a stone in place and pouring oil over it, or having friends gather in your home to pray together a blessing on it as your home, or putting up that symbol that speaks to you of God's presence, those are hands-on, physical, visceral, visual ways of grounding us in the truth 
that bidden or not bidden, God is present. So, this portion of Jacob's story can speak to us of the importance of symbol and ritual in our own lives. And it speaks, too, to the fact that at the very point that Jacob feels as if he's lost it all, he's met right there, in the night, in a dream, by the Holy One's gift and promise. Messing things up really royally does not, categorically does not, put us out of the range of grace, hope, and new beginning. Now that's where the lectionary would have us end the story. But there are a few more verses in this episode that really should be noted as they tell us that Jacob still has some growing to do before he will be able to be truly transformed and grounded by God. Right after he has named that place Bethel, poured the oil over the stone, marked it as holy ground, right after that it says, quote, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth back to you. Here, the Jewish Translator and commentator Robert Alter comments, the conditional form of the vow, if the other party does such and such, then I on my part will do such and such in return, as used by Jacob, has a characterizing particularity. God has already promised Jacob in the dream that he will do all these things for him, Jacob, however, remains the suspicious bargainer, a wrestler with words and conditions, just as he is a physical wrestler, a heel grabber. Heel grabber. That's the literal meaning of his name, Jacob. As when Rebekah gave birth to these twin boys, it was Esau who came first, with Jacob grasping onto his heel in what was presumed to be a final fight, try to get by and be born first. Having been given the gift of a wondrous vision, the extraordinary promise of the abiding presence of God with him wherever he goes, and having received that at the lowest point of his life so far, and then having ritually marked those things by setting up that stone and pouring oil over it, he still remains Jacob, heel grabber, con artist. Awed by his vision of angels and the heavens, he still can't quite let go of that part of his personality that leads him to want to be in charge. And so, even his vow to God is in the form of a bargain. He still has a long way to go and some hard lessons to learn. Still, 
Even in the midst of that long way and those hard lessons, God will keep him. Oh, eventually God will knock Jacob to the ground. But that story is yet to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.